version of the third is well, the man alive. People did most anything just to survive. Here's a story about a man that made his fortune and fame. A robber and desperate, a rabbit cop was my name. El Combiner, Freddie Parker, and his mom. Terrorizing folks right through to St. Paul. Robin Banks' payrolls did not visit all. Alvin Coppers never did things small. As time wore on, all the cows got lit. Nelson, Dylan, Josiegler, and Fred. In early 36, Hoover's boys moved in. The Coppers took the rap for a snatch of hand. They gave him life, sent him to the rock. But he kept his will, couldn't make him talk. Robin Banks, payrolls kidnapped his head it was October 27th, 2016, and the people watching from the shores of Lake Weir near Ocala, Florida, were getting a very unusual sight. The sky was blue, dotted by a few clouds. A flotilla of boats had surrounded a barge which was moving slowly across the lake from its home on the shore of Lake Weir at Oklawaha toward Kearney Island in the conservation area. A slow trip that would eventually cover two miles. It's a moving piece of history, one person was heard to say. Yeah, a history better forgotten, another was heard to say. News teams were set up at every good vantage spot and were interviewing the spectators, hoping for reactions. And there were many. Sitting on the barge was an old two-story house called the Ma Barker House, once a rental home to a woman named Ma Barker, and the house that withstood a four-hour shootout between Ma Barker her son Fred, and the FBI agents who were sworn to take them down. It was January 16, 1935, when Ma Barker and her son Fred were gunned down in their rental home on Lake Weir, ending the longest FBI shootout ever, and launching a legend in the community that has survived for generations. Arizona Donnie Kate Barker was believed to be the ringleader of the 25-member Carpus Barker gang responsible for three kidnappings, ten murders, and thefts of more than $1 million during a three-year rampage, primarily in the Midwest, that began in 1932. Ma Barker was the matron of the bloodiest crime family in American history. Her life started normally enough, but after she got married and things got tough, not having enough money to subsist with her four boys, and then seeing them start to take the crime, she sided with her sons, and it became the Barker family against society. She aided and abetted them in every way through increasing crimes, protecting them, feeding them, going to court for them, providing a place of shelter for them from town to town, and when the end came for her and Fred, she died with them in a hail of gunfire. J. Edgar Hoover wrote this background of Ma Barker and family in FBI Files. The citizens of the southwestern part of the United States had, for a number of years, known and feared many notorious criminals who lived by means outside of the law. Outlaws who plundered throughout the states of Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Another outlaw band had its origin in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri and Arkansas, and the Cookson Hills of Oklahoma, which was later to be publicized as the notorious Carpus Barker Gang which, except for its mobility and modern equipment of machine guns and fast automobiles, was made up of typical southwestern bandits. The nucleus of this ruthless band of criminals was the Barkers. The mother of the Barker brothers, 
Herman, Lloyd, Fred, and Arthur was Arizona Barker, commonly known as Kate Barker, and many of her friends called her Ari Barker. But to her sons and their associates, she was affectionately known as Ma, or Mother. Until after she had been slaughtered by the FBI down in, in Florida down in 1935, and then they built her up over the years gradually as a monster. The truth of the matter was, she's a whole religious, uh, one of those uh, holy roller religious type uh, Ozarks. She never read newspapers. Uh, the only thing she listened to on the radio was hillbilly program, and her greatest pastime was working jigsaw puzzles. And as far as knowing that we were criminals, yes, she knew we were criminals. Kate Barker was born in the vicinity of Ash Grove, Missouri, known as the Ozark country of Scotch-Irish parents. But it is also said that she had some Indian blood in her veins. She was of an ordinary family, and during her life, it appears that she was reared in the vicinity of the place of her birth. On September 14, 1892, as Ari Clark, Kate was married to George E. Barker at Ashgrove, Missouri, and their early married life was spent at Aurora, Missouri, where their sons were born. About 1903 or 1904, the family moved from Aurora to Deb City, Missouri, where Herman and Lloyd, the other sons, attended grade schools. And by the time Herman Barker had completed his grade school education, the family moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Kate Barker's sons, as early as 1915, encountered difficulty in being law-abiding citizens, as evidenced by the arrest of Herman Barker on March 5, 1915, at Joplin, Missouri, on a charge of highway robbery. Fred and Arthur associated with other boys in the vicinity of Old Lincoln Forsyth School, Tulsa, Oklahoma and entered in games and played with the boys around the section known as Central Park. Many of the boys who associated with the sons of Kate Barker later became associates of these boys in their later lives and entered in criminal activities with them. Harry Campbell and Volney Davis matured and grew up with the sons of Kate Barker and in later lives was probably just an average mother of a family who had no aspirations or evidenced no desire to maintain any high plane socially. They were poor and existed through no prolific support from Ma's husband, George Barker, who was more or less a shiftless individual, but who later profited from the criminal earnings of his wife and sons. But he did not put himself into such a position that he could later be termed a member of the gang. J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI had been coming up empty with answers as to where Ma was hiding. But finally, it was a three-legged alligator named Joe that finally tipped them off, at least according to one story. And here's how that story goes. Early in January 1935, the FBI found one of the gang, Arthur Doc Barker, in Chicago. When they broke into his room, he was busy burning every piece of paper he had, said one of the agents. The agents searched through the ashes and found part of a letter which they believed was from Ma or Fred. It said that where they were holed up, there was good hunting for a three-legged alligator called Old Joe. It was a small clue, but it was enough for Hoover. In less than a week, they found there was just such an alligator down on Lake Weir, outside of Ocala, Florida. And that's when the FBI moved in. And that's how Old Joe captured the Barker gang, according to one legend. The other story says that a Chicago raid 
netted a Florida map with Lake Weir circled on it. <laughs> well, we'll leave it up to you to believe one or the other. Keep in mind that the FBI was very anxious to make a name for itself back in those days, and not everything that reached the papers was accurate. When agents with the Department of Justice, now called the FBI, or, or Federal Bureau of Investigation, arrived at the Oklawaha rental home that morning, 63-year-old Ma opened the front door. Seconds later, 32-year-old Fred walked onto the porch and unloaded a volley of machine gun bullets on the government agent, who scrambled for cover. For the next four or five hours, the two sides exchanged gunfire almost continuously. Finally, at noon, about an hour after the shooting from inside the home stopped, agents sent Willie Woodbury, an African-American who had been hired by the Barkers to cook, into the home, he and they knowing that Ma Barker would not fire on him. As Woodbury walked onto the porch, he yelled, It's me, Ma. Don't shoot. But there was no answer. Woodbury walked into the bullet-ridden house. All the windows had been shot out. The walls were Swiss cheese with bullet holes. The furniture was shot up. And when Woodbury walked up the stairs, he found Ma and Fred dead on the floor. In 1985, Woodbury, then 78, recalled of Ma Barker, she was the boss. The house was riddled with nearly 3,500 bullet holes during the shootout. Afterwards, federal agents found machine guns, rifles, pistols, and $14,000 in cash. The Barker's bodies were taken to Pyle's funeral home in Ocala by undertaker Harold Martin and his assistant F.L. McGeehee, the father of former Ocala police chief, Lee McGeehee. Some believe Ma lived up to her nickname, Machine Gun Kate, while others, including Lee McGeehee, believed she was a doting mother who cooked for the gang and lived off the profits. McGeehee said he believes Department of Justice Director J. Edgar Hoover fabricated Ma's image as the cigar-smoking, machine-gun-toting brains of the operation. I think they were afraid if she wasn't built up as a serious gangster, the community wouldn't support him if she was killed, said McGeehee, who now lives in, who lives in Tallahassee. When Alvin Carpus heard that Ma and Fred had been killed, he vowed to avenge their deaths, and he joined forces with Fred Barker, a hardened criminal, in a rash of robberies and kidnappings that netted them over a quarter of a million dollars. They and their accomplices became known as the barker Carpus Gang. By 1935, they were among the last of the gangs the FBI had taken down, already having killed Pretty Boy Floyd, John Dillinger, and Bonnie and Clyde. 1934 and 35 were good and bad years for the FBI and gangs, as the FBI was just beginning to get a handle on forensics at the time when the press was headlining every mistake they made and making the gang members look like heroes. Ma and Fred were just two of the Barker Carpus gang, whose members were many, up to 25, and who were on the run in late 1934 following a big-profile kidnapping in Minnesota. The Barker Carpus gang had become one of the most formidable criminal gangs of the 1930s. They didn't hesitate to kill anyone who got in their way, even innocent bystanders. On December 19, 1931, Alvin Carpus and Fred Barker killed Sheriff C. Roy Kelly, who was investigating their robbery of a store in West Plains, Missouri. C. Roy Kelly, a native of Van Buren, Missouri, was born in 1885. Mr. Kelly had worked as a traveling salesman for a Springfield candy company. After C. Roy Kelly was married, he and his wife moved to Mountain View, Missouri, 
where they owned a restaurant. Kelly believed that Howell County needed better law enforcement and decided to run for office of sheriff. He was elected to that office by a large majority. After becoming sheriff, Kelly was well-liked because of his firm but friendly personality. He was a big man and fit the image of being a sheriff, but hardly ever carried a gun. Sheriff Kelly believed that it was better to try to enforce the law using peaceful means. There had been several unsolved burglaries in the West Plains area. Late at night on December 17th, C.C. McCallum's clothing store was robbed of $2,000 worth of merchandise. Apparently, the crooks had entered the store through a back window after removing two metal bars. The stolen clothing had been carefully selected. The crooks were only interested in the latest fashions. The most expensive socks, ties, gloves, sweaters, and shirts were stolen. Earlier that year, the Perkins gang had tried to rob the bank of Mountain View. Something similar was now happening in West Plains, but no one knew exactly who to blame. It was just before 9 a.m. on December 19, 1931, when a blue DeSoto sedan drove along East Main Street, pulling into the Davidson Motor Company. The three men in the car needed two tires repaired. One of the mechanics started fixing the flats. Sheriff Kelly had just finished his coffee and was walking into the post office across from the garage. While the flats were being fixed, the garage owner, Carrick Davidson, noticed that the men in the car were wearing clothes that looked like the stolen merchandise from C.C. McCallan's store. Also, the tires on the blue DeSoto made tracks similar to those found behind the building where the break-in had occurred. Quietly, Mr. Davidson slipped away to use the phone. He called Roy McCallan, asking him to come to the garage and see if the men were wearing the clothing from his store. He called the owner of the store, Mr. McCallan, asking him to come to the garage and see if the men were wearing the clothing from his store. When Mr. McCallan arrived at the garage, Sheriff Kelly was also coming out of the post office. Carefully, Mr. Davidson walked across the street to tell him what might be happening. Sheriff Kelly stepped over to his car, got his gun from the back seat, and slipped it under his coat. Then he crossed East Main Street, entering the garage to question the men in the blue DeSoto. And just as the sheriff opened the car door, shots suddenly rang out. The gang knew they'd been caught. One of the crooks ran outside, reloading his pistol as he fled. Turning down an alley at the side of the garage, he quickly made his escape. Tires screeched as the blue DeSoto roared out onto the street. The car hit the curb hard and bounced, causing the right rear door to accidentally swing open. The blue DeSoto then disappeared down East Main Street. The bad guys were gone, and Sheriff Kelly was dead. He'd been shot twice in the chest and two more times in the left arm. His right hand was still inside his overcoat. The people of West Plains began looking for the outlaws that had killed the Howell County Sheriff. The only thing they found, belonging to the man who escaped on foot, was a red scarf. M.C. Stevens, a West Plains policeman, led a group of men in search of the sheriff's killers. Crowds of people gathered in front of the police station, waiting to hear whether or not the gang had been caught. State lawmen came to West Plains to help with the manhunt. It was soon discovered that the killers had headed south toward Thayer, Missouri. The Blue DeSoto was accidentally found by a group of hunters. The car had been abandoned. When the hunters found bullet holes in the back of the car, the men knew something was wrong and reported it. After checking the license, the officers discovered that the car belonged to Alvin Carpus, a member of the Ma Barker gang. Immediately, everyone knew it was the same car that the outlaws had used. 
When the lawmen arrived in Thayer, Missouri, they found a farm that had been rented by a Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Dunlop of Oklahoma. However, Mrs. Arthur Dunlop was really Ma Barker. That was her alias. The Ma Barker gang was using the farm as a hideout, but when the police raided the farm, the killers were already gone. The farm was booby-trapped to make a bell ring inside the house if the front gate was open, allowing the gang to know when the lawmen were coming. Half of the clothes stolen from C.C. McCallan's store were found in the farmhouse. Part of the clothing had been burned in a wood stove to hide the evidence. Something more important than the clothing was still lying on the kitchen table. A map. This map was a drawing of the First National Bank of West Plains. The Ma Barker gang intended to rob the West Plains Bank if Sheriff Kelly hadn't ruined their plans. So even though the brave sheriff had been killed, he was still a hero in Howell County. Later it was discovered that the Ma Barker gang had also worked in other parts of the Ozark region. They'd killed a night watchman in Pocahontas, Arkansas, and a policeman in Monette, Missouri. However, after shooting Sheriff Kelly, the outlaws left the Ozarks for good. It was 1931. The gang, including Ma Barker and her paramour, Arthur Dunlop, fled to St. Paul, Minnesota. When Arthur Barker was released from prison in 1932, he joined the others, and soon they were adding bank robbery to their list of crimes. Also joining them in the crime spree were brothers Herman and Lloyd Barker. Fred Barker and Carpus were meticulous in their planning and often added additional individuals who had specific types of hold-up skills or other criminal experience needed for a job. In 1932, Carpus could name 11 banks they'd robbed, but the number was probably actually higher. By rotating their members, this caused greater difficulty for the FBI in catching them. That same year, in 1932, the Barker Carpus gang rented a house at 1031 South Robert Street in St. Paul, posing as a family of speakeasy musicians. Fred Barker and Alvin Creepy Carpus, the gang's principal members, had entered St. Paul, which was then a haven for criminals. The gang then tried to smooth the way politically in Minneapolis, with Alvin Carpus and Fred Barker giving over $10,000 in campaign contributions to a candidate for mayor, Ralph Van Leer. They wanted the ability to come and go into Minneapolis without the fear of police harassment while they planned their bank robberies. And planned they did. Through the fall of 1932, they held up banks in Redwood Falls, Minnesota, and Wapiton, North Dakota, hightailing it back to the Twin Cities to lay low and regroup. On December 16, 1932, however, they changed their minds and decided to hold up a bank in Minneapolis. It would end up being one of the bloodiest days in the Barker Carpus Gang's spectacularly violent history. Their target was the 3rd Northwestern National Bank, a three-sided building filled with big glass windows, which sat on a three-sided lot bordered by 5th Street, Central Avenue, and Hennepin Avenue. The gang numbered seven that day, including Doc, Fred, Alvin, Larry the Chopper DeVol, William Weaver, and Jess Doyle. Rounding out the group was Vern Miller, who would later, along with Pretty Boy Floyd, be responsible for the Kansas City Massacre, which killed an FBI agent, three police officers, and the guy they were trying to break out of the police custody, Miller's pal, Frank Jelly Nash. The gang had prepared well for this Minneapolis heist and had cased the bank for weeks. On December 16th, they made their move, quietly entering the building to take some money. 
Two of the outlaws went into the Central Avenue entrance, and two others used the Hennepin Avenue doors, armed with Thompson submachine guns and 45 caliber automatics fitted with extra-large clips. Larry Duvall, carrying a machine gun, stood in front of the bank, guarding the entrance. The thieves inside, led by Fred Barker and Vern Miller, got to work. Fred yelled at the bank tellers to open the vault, and Miller forced the bank's customers to the floor face down. When a bank teller insisted he couldn't get the vault open, Miller pistol-whipped him, but not before the teller was able to trip the bank's silent alarms. That brought two police officers, Ira Evans and Leo Gorski, to the scene of the holdup. Their shifts had just ended, but they raced to the bank and were met by the gang's lookout, Larry Duvall, who immediately sprayed the police car with machine gun fire from 15 feet away. Other members of the gang inside broke the bank windows and assisted in barraging the street with bullets, which instantly killed Officer Evans and mortally wounded Officer Gorski. The gang then headed for their getaway car, fresh with $22,000 in cash and $100,000 in securities. Their Lincoln tore east on 5th, then on to Hennepin Avenue, and finally to Larpentur Avenue, screeching back to St. Paul along a series of twists and turns that Carpus would one day remember in his autobiography, calling it Bank Robber's Row. As they sped to safety, they realized that they indeed needed to switch cars. A tire had been punctured by one of their own stray bullets. Driving much of their way on the car's rim, they finally made it to an area of Como Park where they had parked the Chevy for just this possibility. The gang piled out of the Lincoln, and as they began switching the license plates on the Chevy, a passing car slowed down to see what was going on. It was driven by a man named Oscar Erickson, out trying to sell Christmas wreaths to neighbors in the area. As the car passed by, Fred Barker, thinking the driver was trying to copy down their license plate number, pulled out a pistol and opened up on Erickson, landing a fatal shot in his head. Erickson would leave a grieving family behind, along with Officer Evans and Gorski. The Barker Carpus gang got away, at least for a while, and lived to terrorize another day. This robbery and others were planned and led by Alvin, who had a photographic memory and was described as super smart by fellow gang member Fred Hunter. The other leaders were Doc and Fred Barker, and the gang included about 25 others. At this time, a myth was started that Ma Barker ruled the gang with an iron fist, but the facts don't seem to support these claims. It's highly unlikely the criminals as adept as Carpus, and even Ma's sons for that matter, would have listened to her. Carpus later wrote about this subject in his memoirs. Ma was always somebody in our lives. Love didn't enter into it, really. She was somebody we looked after and took with us when we moved from city to city, hideout to hideout. It's no insult to Ma's memory that she just didn't have the know-how to direct us on a robbery. It would not have occurred to her to get involved in our business, and we always made a point of discussing our scores when she wasn't around. We'd leave her at home when we were arranging a job, or we'd send her to a movie. Mom saw a lot of movies. After the death of Ma and Fred, Carpus allegedly sent word to FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover that he intended to kill Hoover the way Hoover had killed Ma and Fred. According to Carpus in the Alvin Carpus story, the death threat was a rumor started by Hoover himself. Harvey Bailey, another well-known bank robber, knew the Barker gang well, and in his autobiography, published in the 1970s, he agreed with Carpus, observing that Ma Barker, quote, couldn't plan breakfast, end quote, 
and was certainly no mastermind behind any gang activity. It is purported that Ma Barker's entire reputation as a criminal mastermind was concocted by Hoover to protect the FBI's public image after federal agents discovered they had killed a 62-year-old mother. In 1933, on the same weekend as the Kansas City Massacre, which we discussed in our episode called The Untouchables, they kidnapped William Ham, a millionaire Minnesota brewer. And anybody who lives up in that area knows or remembers Ham's beer. His ransom netted them $100,000, but at the same time, it opened their path to a downfall. You can picture in a black-and-white movie a gang of fedora-hat-wearing criminals Gangland members liked to dress up back in those days. It gave them, they thought, more respect. Anyway, gangland members in a 30s-style car and an unexpected kidnapping. Then the screeching tires in the getaway. And here's how it all went down. On a warm summer evening in 1933, William A. Ham Jr., president of the Theodore Ham Brewing Company, was working at his office in St. Paul, Minnesota. He had just exited the building when he was grabbed by four shadowed figures and pushed into the back of a car. What he didn't know was that he'd been kidnapped by members of the Barker Carpus Gang for a ransom of over $100,000. He was taken to Wisconsin, where he was forced to sign four ransom notes. Then he was moved to a hideout in Bensonville, Illinois, where he was held prisoner until the kidnappers had been paid. Once the money was handed over, Ham was released near Wyoming, Minnesota. The plan was perfect and went off without a hitch. Almost entered the FBI crime lab. On September 6, 1933, using a then-state-of-the-art technology now called latent fingerprint identification, a means of raising incriminating fingerprints from surfaces that couldn't be dusted for prints, Alvin Carpus, Doc Barker, Charles Fitzgerald, and the other members of the gang had gotten away, but they left their fingerprints behind, all over the ransom notes. It's called the silver nitrate method, and its application in the ham kidnapping was the first time it was used successfully to extract latent prints from forensic evidence. Scientists had just thought to take advantage of the fact that unseen fingerprints contained perspiration, chock full of sodium chloride, common table salt. By painting the evidence, in this case the ransom notes, with a silver nitrate solution, the salty perspiration reacted chemically to form silver chloride which is white and visible to the naked eye. There they were, hard evidence that the Carpus gang was behind the kidnapping. Case closed. Today, latents are developed by hugely sophisticated methods. The FBI's latent print unit uses powders, lasers, and alternative light sources to detect and analyze partial and complete fingerprints. Its cyanoacrylate process encloses evidence in a sealed cabinet and exposes it to cyanoacrylate glue fumes in order to bring up prints. Fluorescent lights and lens filters are also used to good effect. Then, once the latent print has been found, it is run through the Bureau's Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System, what they call IAFIS, an electronic network of databases of millions of fingerprints housed in the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Service Division in Clarksburg, West Virginia. When a match is made, Chances are pretty good that it's the beginning of the end of the investigation. In an article titled America's Most Wanted Mother, Howard Kazanjian and Chris Enns made the case that Ma Barker was in on the planning for the kidnappings 
and that the FBI had the wrong suspects for the ham kidnapping. When Edward Bremer's kidnapping was presented to Mom, she ordered her crew to meet and discuss the proposal, they say. They'd already been successful that summer of kidnapping William Ham. In Ham's case, the ransom note from the abductors warned the Hams that William would be shot and killed if the police were allowed any involvement. A note sent to William's father instructed him to deliver the ransom money in five, ten, and twenty dollar bills. Payment of the ransom for the release of William, the kidnappers directed, was to be made using one of the company's beer trucks. Not only did the Barker Carpus gang get the full amount they were asking for in ransom, but when the authorities did begin investigating the kidnapping, a rival gang was arrested for the crime. J. Edgar Hoover himself announced from Washington that his men had put together a solid case against the Tui gang, Alvin Carpus wrote in his memoirs. The scientific evidence left no doubt at all, Hoover said, that the Tuies were behind the kidnapping of William Ham. The ease with which the Barker Carpus gang was able to get away from taking William and collecting the ransom was an argument for kidnapping Edward Bremer, another brewing company magnate. In late December 1933, Ma's boys convened at William Weaver's apartment in St. Paul to talk through the details of the abduction. Who would trail Edward to learn about his habits, routine, friends, and work associates? Who would write the ransom notes? Who would deliver those notes to what contact? and when the job would be done, were all determined. With the exception of Arthur, whom Ma suggested might have been a little too rough with the victim, everyone performed his duties as planned. The Barker Carpus gang operated in St. Paul, Minnesota, under the protection of corrupt police chief Tom Brown and local racketeers Jack Piper and Harry Sawyer. Sawyer had orchestrated their previous successful kidnapping of William Ham. He now proposed that Edward Bremer should be their next victim. Bremer was 34 and was president of Commercial State Bank. His father, Adolf Bremer, was also a banker and the owner of Schmidt Beer Brewery, the beer known as Schmidt's Beer. It is thought that Bremer was not chosen simply because of his wealth, but also because of a personal vendetta, possibly linked to the ending of the Prohibition era. Schmidt breweries were widely believed to have survived in the Prohibition era by working with bootleggers such as Sawyer. With Prohibition over, the Bremers severed ties with their criminal associates. According to Sawyer's wife, her husband and Ed Bremer got into a dispute over alcohol. Alvin Carpus later said that Sawyer had some sort of beef with the victim and that he sure didn't like Bremer. When the FBI investigated the kidnapping, they discovered that Bremer had many enemies. An FBI report noted that he is, quote, very much disliked, not only by his family, but generally. He has an uncontrollable temper, he is very selfish, and has few friends, end quote. On January 17, 1934, Bremer was kidnapped from the streets of St. Paul, Minnesota. He was on his way to work, having just dropped his daughter off at school when he was approached by two men, one of whom was Arthur Doc Barker. Barker repeatedly punched and pistol-whipped him, forcing him into the back of Bremer's car and placing blindfold goggles over his eyes. After having some difficulty starting the vehicle, the kidnappers forced a bleeding Bremer to show them the starter button, then drove off, later switching to another car. The bloodstained vehicle was later recovered, leading to fears that Bremer had been killed. But Bremer had been held captive in Bensonville, Illinois. He was kept in a small room 
and was told that his family would be killed if he said anything to the police. He was also told to provide the names of people who could act as intermediaries. Messages demanding $200,000 were left with the Bremers' trusted business associate and former chauffeur, Walter McGee. Through Tom Brown, the gang learned that McGee had informed the police, despite the gang's demand that he should keep quiet. They threatened to kill him and Bremer. Adolf Bremer, the victim's father, refused to pay up unless the kidnappers provided proof of life. Edward was forced to write another note pleading to be returned to his wife and children. When Adolf also tried to reduce the ransom money, Fred Barker became enraged and suggested they should kill Edward. His brother Arthur and Carpus overruled him. In the end, the ransom was paid by dropping off a bag full of cash, which was collected by George Ziegler. Edward was driven to a deserted road by Ziegler and released on February 7th, left on the empty road with a small amount of cash. He had to make his own way back home. The FBI had recorded the serial numbers of all the cash used to pay the ransom. They launched an intensive investigation declaring Alvin Carpus, presumed leader of the gang, to be public enemy number one. Bremer, completely traumatized and worried about the safety of his wife and children, refused to cooperate with the FBI. When they threatened to reveal what they believed about his links to organized crime, he admitted what he knew about the kidnappers and his suspicions about their connection to Sawyer. The gang knew that they needed to launder the money, but the intensity of the FBI pressure meant that most of their criminal contacts refused to participate. Ziegler was gunned down in a drive-by killing by unknown assailants in March. Sawyer claimed that he'd arranged for the money to be laundered in Cuba. The gang withdrew to Cuba, but Carpus became concerned that the money had not been laundered and that the FBI would soon find them there. That was when the decision came to move to Lake Weir, Florida. They asked the hotel concierge if he could recommend any good rentals in Florida, and the Lake Weir spot was suggested. Doc left for Chicago, hoping to organize a new criminal project. But he was soon recognized and arrested January 8, 1935, along with minor gang member Byron Bolton. Doc wouldn't talk, but Bolton told the FBI everything he knew in exchange for a light sentence. Eight days later, Doc's brother Fred Barker and Kate Ma Barker were killed in a shootout with the FBI at Lake Weir. Volney Davis was also captured, and Sawyer was tracked down and captured in Mississippi. Alvin Carpus, who was co-leader of the gang, along with Fred Barker, was arrested by the FBI in May of 1936. Carpus pleaded guilty to kidnapping, and Doc Barker was convicted after a trial. Both men were sent to Alcatraz. Carpus became the Rock's longest-serving inmate, eventually being paroled in 1869 after decades in prison. Barker was shot while trying to escape from Alcatraz in 1939. Sawyer received a life sentence in 1936. He was released from prison in 1955 due to ill health and died shortly after. The kidnappings had a significant effect on campaigns against police corruption. During the investigation, it became clear to the FBI agents that information was being leaked to the kidnappers. Tom Brown was strongly suspected to be the source of the leaks and forced out of the team investigating the case. Brown was implicated as a conspirator in the kidnapping after an investigation by the FBI and a hearing before the city's civil service board. 
Brown was then fired from the police force, but the federal government declined further prosecution. The death and arrest of all the important Barker Carpus gang members greatly enhanced the reputation of the FBI. The father of kidnapped Edward Bremer, as we said earlier, was the owner of Schmidt's Brewery and was a friend of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt had even mentioned the kidnapping in one of his radio fireside chats, and fueled also by the Lindbergh kidnapping, the FBI and local police bureaus had greatly stepped up their pursuit of those engaged in those type of crimes. We'll cover the Lindbergh story and the kidnapping one of these days soon at 1001. The FBI had by this time organized a group of highly skilled agents called the Flying Squads, which specialized in hunting down the leading public enemies, and they had been very effective. The term Flying Squads was initiated by FBI agent Jerry Campbell, who had been involved in the hunting for and taking down of some of the worst of the 30s era's criminals. The FBI would fly the agents to various locations where crimes had occurred or where they had received tips, and it was Campbell who came up with the nickname the FBI Flying Squads. The year 1934 alone saw the deaths of John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, Lester Babyface Nelson Gillis, John Red Hamilton, Homer Van Meter, Tommy Carroll, and Eddie Green. Just after Ma and Fred's death in the shootout with the FBI on January 16, 1935, Carpus nearly met his own violent end when the FBI found him in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Carpus and Harry Campbell managed to shoot their way to an escape, though Carpus's eight-month pregnant girlfriend, Dolores Delaney, was hit in the thigh by a wild shot fired by Campbell. She was captured by the FBI, along with Campbell's girl. Dolores gave birth to a son who was adopted by Carpus's parents. Lucky kid. Carpus and Campbell hid out with brothel keeper Edith Berry for several months. Carpus continued his crimes with others, but had to keep on the move more than ever, as he was the fourth and last of the FBI's public enemy number ones. The previous three? John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Babyface Nelson, and those already having been killed. He did manage to pull off a crime that echoed the times of the Old West, a train robbery in Garrettsville, Ohio, which netted $27,000. Alvin's heroes had always been criminals, especially Jesse James, and one of Alvin's life's goals in crime was to rob a train in the style of the train robbers of the past, which, in 1934-35, wasn't that long ago, maybe 45 years previous. That would be the same as looking back at 1975 today. Today, the train depot and the railroad tracks in Garrettsville are gone. In their place now stands a parking lot along the Portage County Hike and Bike Trail off Freedom Road. But in November of 1935, people were waiting at the depot for the train to arrive, and it was coming from Cleveland and headed to Warren with a payroll on board. And Alvis Carpus had found that out. The days of train holdups had ended with Butch and Sundance and the James Gang, or so people thought, until six men, some of them masked and armed with a combination of machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, and pistols, suddenly appeared on the platform, shooting their guns into the air to get attention. Just seconds after the train had pulled in, it looked like a scene from a Wild West movie, and it was planned that way by Carpus, who knew his days were getting shorter and wanted to go down in the pages of history with a great train heist. 
The robbers, three of whom were masked, threw unlit sticks of dynamite into the train, then warned that the next sticks would be lit. A threat that worked in getting the train crew to open the doors, giving the thieves access. Ten bystanders were lined up, hands on their heads, during the ordeal. One of them was told to carry four heavy mail pouches from the platform to the bandit's gray Plymouth sedan. Carpus got away with 34000 in cash and 12450 in bond securities, far less than they expected to get, but still the modern-day equivalent of about $715,000. And for Carpus, fame. The FBI arrived soon after the bold robbery and questioned more than a dozen locals, even the high school sports team, giving that team a nickname that still survives today, the Garrettsville G-Men. The Barker family included brothers Herman, Lloyd, Arthur, who was also called Doc, and Fred, the sons of Ma Barker. Growing up impoverished in a sharecropping family, all the boys, without any guidance otherwise, soon had turned into hardened criminals, robbing banks, and killing without provocation. Doc was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1920 after murdering a night watchman. Herman committed suicide on August 29, 1927, after being badly injured in a shootout with police in Wichita, Kansas, following the robbery of the Newton Ice Plant in Newton, Kansas, with Charles Stalkup and Porter Meeks. Lloyd was sentenced to 25 years in 1922 for mail theft and released in 1938. He was a U.S. Army cook at a POW camp and later was murdered by his wife in 1949. Ma did her part to help her sons all the time. She was not herself a criminal, but badgered parole boards, wardens, and governors for the release of her boys when they were incarcerated. After Alvin was released in 1931, he joined up with Fred Barker in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they soon put together the Barker Carpus Gang. A little more on Alvin Francis Carpus, who was nicknamed Creepy Carpus for his sinister smile and called Ray by his gang members. He was a Canadian-born, naturalized American criminal of Lithuanian descent. Carpus was born in Montreal, Quebec, and was raised in Topeka, Kansas. He started in crime at about age 10, selling pornography and running around with gamblers, bootleggers, and pimps. I was running errands for the pimps, gamblers, and carrying booze for the bootleggers. And instead of making a cent paper, I'd come home maybe midnight, one or two o'clock in the morning with a dollar and a half, two dollars in my pocket, but I'd have much more than that. I'd hide. Did you feel like a big shot? Sure I do. What kid wasn't at 10 years old? Come on. I had more money than any kid in the neighborhood. So uh, Were you tough? Too? No. No, not tough. But I was, uh, I held my own. If I used to steal, sure, I'd on the way home, like if I seen something in a store window. Don't forget they didn't have squad cars or anything like that in those days. If I seen something in the store window that appealed to me on the streets going home, I'd hide a brick or two around there on the alley or the street in the first stormy night. Why, I'd just throw the brick through the window and uh, go in there and take what it was I wanted out there, maybe destroy a $50 window for a $3 object. In 1926, he was sentenced to 10 years at the State Industrial Reformatory in Hutchinson, Kansas, for an attempted burglary. He escaped with another inmate, Lawrence DeVoe, who you remember was the front door guard on one of those bank heists and went on a year-long crime spree, interrupted briefly while he lived with his parents after DeVoe was arrested. 
After moving to Kansas City, Missouri, he was caught stealing a car and sent back to the reformatory. Transferred to the Kansas State Penitentiary at Lansing, that's where he met Fred Barker, who was in prison for bank burglary. Carpus was the mastermind who led the gang along with Fred Barker and Arthur Doc Barker. The FBI had come a long way since its reorganization and renaming in 1935 from the Bureau of Investigation, created in 1908. J. Edgar Hoover was appointed as the acting head of the Bureau in 1924 and completely transformed the agency. Despite its successes, however, the agency did have many problems. In those days, when the application of science and technology to fight crime was still in its infancy, the agency was at the mercy of public citizens for information. Often, agents acting on bad information were sent off to remote locales on tips that turned out to be red herrings. The personal low point for Hoover came in an April 1936 United States Senate hearing, where Senator Kenneth McKellar of Tennessee lambasted Hoover for the performance of the FBI and the fact that Hoover himself had never personally arrested anyone. After the hearing, a determined Hoover vowed he would capture Carpus personally. But Hoover didn't have to wait long. On May 1, 1936, the FBI located Carpus in New Orleans, and Hoover flew there to be in charge of the arrest. As a dozen or so agents swarmed over Carpus's car, Hoover announced to Carpus that he was under arrest. A couple of versions of the arrest have been reported. Carpus's version, told in his memoirs, was that Hoover came out only after all the other agents had seized him. Only then did the agents call to Hoover that it was safe to approach the car. The official FBI version states that Hoover reached into the car and grabbed Carpus before he could reach a rifle in the back seat. In fact, the car, a Plymouth Coupe, had no back seat. The scene was further confused when Hoover told his men to put the handcuffs on him, and not one agent had brought handcuffs. Carpus was tied up with an agent's necktie. The capture of Carpus catapulted Hoover into the public eye, though, and made his name synonymous with law enforcement until he died in 1972 at the age of 77. I say this, that 28 agents arrested me, and while we, even they were, uh, well, put a mile, a bit excited most of them, and one was shouting, Put your hands up, another one. Keep your hands down, another one. Sit on the running board. This another was in one. New Orleans. Yeah, right yeah, about five in the evening. And uh, there was a fellow behind me with a rifle. He was so shaky that uh, in the excitement, he wasn't scared to go misunderstand. I mean, you could feel the barrel vibrating. Yeah, well, yeah, he couldn't, hold, he couldn't hold it still. So I asked the man in front of me with the machine gun. He seemed to be the coolest in the lot. I said, Who's the boss of this outfit, anyway? And he said, oh, he'll be here in a minute. Why? And I said, well, I wanted to tell that guy to, uh, with the rifle back of me to get it out of my back because uh, he's so nervous, I think he's going to shoot right through me and right through you. He, he does shoot. Uh, and this got the guy a little upset. He heard me say that. He said, well, you son of a bitch. When we get you to the office, I'm going to show you who the boss is. And I turned my head like that to answer him. And as I did, up at the corner of the apartment building, this was on the corner, I see a guy peeping around the corner. And I thought, what the hell is this? And I, when I stopped talking, these other agents that were right close to me uh, 
they started looking to see what I was looking at, why I quit talking. And finally, here came another one around the corner, looking around the corner. One of the agents shouted, We got him, Chief. We got him. Come on, come on. Everything's all right. We got him. So here they came, and it turned out to be the Gold Dust Twins, as they were known in those days, Cooper and Clyde Tolson. The capture of Carpus essentially ended the age of the big-name Depression-era criminal. In addition to those mentioned earlier, others killed violently in the 1930s included Jack Legs Diamond, Vincent Mad Dog Cole, Frank Jelly Nash, and Dutch Schultz. Al Capone had already been sent to Alcatraz and was slowly going insane from syphilis. Carpus was brought to trial at the St. Paul Federal Courts Building, now Landmark Center, in St. Paul. Carpus initially pleaded not guilty, but as the case was called for trial, Thomas J. Newman, attorney for Carpus, told the court his client, one of the actual kidnappers of Ham, desired to plead guilty. Two weeks later, Carpus offered, through his attorney, Thomas Newman, to plead guilty to the Bremer conspiracy. If kidnapping charges were dropped, and the court accepted the offer. Carpus holds the record for the longest time spent as a federal prisoner at Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary, serving 26 years. Sentenced to life imprisonment, Carpus was incarcerated August 1936 to April 1962. For six months in 1958, he was transferred to Leavenworth, but was then returned to Alcatraz. His main job there? Working in the bakery. Tell me about Stroud. You, you met the Birdman in Leavenworth? Well, yes, yes. When I first went to uh, Leavenworth, I was held there six days, as I told you formerly, about the psychiatric bit. And they put me in a cell across Stroud, a cell block. It was an old cell block, and it was situated something like this, uh, a corridor down the center, cell spacing one another. Well, there was a fellow in the cell across from me, and the lights had to be on 24 hours a day in these cells. Nice screen over the barred doors. Well, it turned out that I noticed this fellow had a typewriter and a microscope on a table in this cell, which I thought very unusual. And he uh, got up from the table, and he walked toward the wall of this cell and suddenly disappeared, and I wondered what the hell's going on here. Uh, as it turned out, they had cut a doorway through one wall of this cell that led into the next one, and that is where it turned out he kept his canaries. He was far from a model prisoner, frequently fighting with the other inmates. In April of 62, with Alcatraz in the process of being closed, Carpus was transferred to McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington State. And while at McNeil, Carpus met young Charles Manson, Carpus wrote about Manson in his autobiography with Robert Livesey, written in 1980. He said, This kid approaches me to request music lessons. He wants to learn guitar and become a music star. Little Charlie Manson is so lazy and shiftless, I doubt if he'll put in the time required to learn. The youngster's been in institutions all of his life. First orphanages, then reformatories, and finally federal prison. His mother, a prostitute, was never around to look after him. I decide it's time someone did something for him, and to my surprise, he learns quickly. He has a pleasant voice and a pleasing personality, although he's unusually meek and mild for a convict. He never has a harsh word to say, and he's never involved in even an argument. 
After Manson had become proficient on the guitar, he asked Carpus for help in getting a job playing in Las Vegas, as Carpus had had contacts with nightclub and casino owners there. However, after 26 years in jail, those contacts were probably getting a little dated. Manson told him he would be bigger than the Beatles, but Carpus decided to leave Manson on his own regarding his music career. Manson was a mass killer with quite a following himself while in prison, having generated lots of very strange female fans through all the stories written about him and his exploits when he and his drug-crazed pals tortured and killed pregnant actress Sharon Tate at her home. Carpus was released on parole in 1969 and deported to Canada, although he initially had difficulty obtaining Canadian passport credentials, having had his fingerprints removed by underworld physician Joseph Moran in 1934. He settled in Montreal. He wrote his first memoirs in 1971, while another memoir book was published in 1980, one year after his death. During his first book tour across Canada for Public Enemy No. 1, for McClelland and Stewart, published in the U.S. as the Alvin Carpus story. Carpus, looking more like an accountant than a gangster, still showed a wry sense of humor. In Edmonton, Alberta, while shuffling Carpus between various interviews with the media, M&S book rep Ruth Bertelson made a stop at her bank. Asking Carpus if he wanted to come in with her, Carpus replied, No, dear, you take care of the vault. I'll drive. And if you can believe this, that same publisher rep allowed him to become a mentor to her young son. Until the sociopathy of some of his advice to her son angered Miss Bertelson. Do you think? Carpus moved to Spain in 1973. On August 26, 1979, he died by what was originally ruled suicide by the authorities, as sleeping pills were found by his body, but later it was ruled death from natural causes. Some closer to the scene say foul play may have been involved. Robert Leibsey, who co-wrote Carpus's 1979 book, said Carpus was not the type to commit suicide. Leibsey said Carpus was a survivor, having served 33 years in prison, and also stated Carpus was anticipating the publication of the book. Leibsey believed Carpus had been introduced to pills and alcohol by his last girlfriend, Nancy, to give a relaxing high, and perhaps Carpus accidentally overindulged on one occasion with fatal consequences. No autopsy was performed, and Carpus was buried the next day in Spain. In the end, Carpus's quest for fame turned out to be short-lived, despite his masterminding of the last great train robbery and the fact that he'd garnered over half a million on stolen loot and survived an intense manhunt for seven years, outlasting every other thug on the FBI's public enemy number one list. But of all the names remembered today, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, Al Capone, Ma Barker, and John Dillinger are still the most talked about and remembered. Alvin Carpus became just another dusty footnote in gangland history and a reminder that crime doesn't pay for long. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We enjoy having you with us very much and hope you're subscribing. I have a fresh and now active list of links in the show notes if you're interested in subscribing onto any one of our four shows. It's free. We especially need reviews from you Apple listeners who enjoy our show. We spend lots of time researching our stories, writing, recording, and editing, and your reviews are the best way of helping us grow 
along with getting new subscribers. So thanks to all of you. We occasionally do get bad reviews. And although I don't often answer them, I'm going to make an exception today and answer two that came recently, both in reaction to my Stonehenge episode. The first titled, Slammed Me for My Pronouncing Stonehenge as Stonehenge. I did. No apologies. I just slipped into the wrong pronunciation and hung with it all the way through. Stonehenge, Stonehenge. A slight cold or possibly mental laziness. The mispronunciation wasn't due to poor research. Because if you remember, I broke down the two words stone and henge at the beginning of the episode, explaining how the word was initially formed. To my credit, in my four shows a week, I probably correctly pronounce about 30,000 words, including numerous ones in classic short stories, words that some might find extremely difficult. Sometimes, especially with foreign words, I have to stop everything and search a word to get the correct pronunciation, such as the town of Aix, spelled A-I-X in France, as just one example. As for research, I spent two hours reviewing video of the mayhem in the bean field and interviews with members of the communes that comprised most of the occupants of the caravan vehicles that protested not being able to continue onward to the free concert at Stonehenge. Then I studied newspaper accounts. Then I researched online accounts. The term the caravan interviewees used for police then was coppers. On video, about 90% of the caravan participants had long hair. The police reported that not only had huge amounts of drugs been confiscated during this confrontation in the beanfield, but that the free concerts in Britain at the time, including the Stonehenge concerts, had become a haven for drug sales and distribution and drug use. This exists in reports from police and newspaper accounts. Seeing it on video is hardly what you can label as stereotyping. Yes, straight kids not on dope do go to concerts. And I don't like to be reminded through bad reviews that there are exceptions to every rule. But don't tell me I don't do my research. Most, I would say about 80% of the concert goers sported long hair. Drugs were everywhere. I'm glad the reviewers' free concert experiences were different. But don't slam our efforts here or insult my ability to get a story straight. As for living in the past, I've had a rewarding and fulfilling life. I do lean on personal experience for some of my stories. I do podcasts about history, so I enjoy sharing the past. And yes, I have opinions about it. Opinions gained from a lifetime of experience. In fact, I try to bring the past to life. Thank you all so very, very, very much for your reviews. They're greatly appreciated. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with another episode. Everybody stay safe, subscribe, and tell a friend. Thank you.